0: You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Messiah Yavaneres Blanco, editor of Corporate Capture of Development, Public-Private Partnerships, Women's Human Rights, and Global Resistance, published this year by Bloomsbury. Dr. Yavaneros Blanco, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book?
1: All right. So uh, I am a professor of uh, assistant professor of development studies at Huron University College at Western University in Canada. I'm also part of DON, which is Development Alternatives with Women for a New Era, um, which is a feminist network of researchers uh, activists uh, and activists from the global south. And with Don, we've been work we have been working for a long time in issues pertaining uh, to you know uh, finance uh, for development, uh feminist economics, uh, and that line of thinking uh, from a southern feminist lens. So I get uh to be part of this of this project which produce a corporate capture of development as part of a collective of researchers and activists are concerned with the growing uh, corporate influence in how development and public policy is being thought and applied.
0: Okay, so what is a public-private partnership and why have they become so popular in the development field over the last few decades?
1: Right, so um, public-private partnerships or we call them PPPs for short, because they're a mouthful. Our model of uh, developed finance and and really public policy finance that has been around for a long time. um, It has become part of the development lingo uh, more recently, I would say for the last two decades, uh, maybe two decades and a bit, depending on our current date. And it's really a model uh, of contractual relationships between state and uh, private corporations, whereby governments are, uh, in principle, entering in a partnership with a private partner uh, to say, provide a service that we associate with the labor of the government. That can be building a highway, that can be building a hospital or running a hospital it can really go in many, many directions. So that's one of the first uh, aspects of PPPs that are hard to define, is that they're really um, applied in a wide diversity of sectors and therefore are, um, you know, adapted to different sectors of government um, accordingly. What is interesting to us is that um, PPPs, Uh, are being proposed forced forced to, or let's say enthusiastically by major development actors like World Bank as a solution uh, for public service provision in the Global South, uh, whereby the the main argument here is that in most cases, state and government are incapable or unable to provide Good services and therefore it is allow uh, more logical to rely on the private sector to provide this service and um, there are some issues that are already problematic in this logic one of them the assumption that there is uh, a lack of capability in um, the public sector in the global south just for starters the global south think, in the large area uh, it includes very diverse um, countries and very different institutional capacity. Um, but also, the assumption that and there is no institutional capability installed to provide services also goes for the institutional capability required to say negotiate contracts with private corporations and uh, that will provide public services. And what we find is that states and the governments are often often ill-equipped to properly negotiate the terms of these contracts with corporations that are really like every corporation I'm um, more concerned with profit uh provision you know the the logic of, of the private sector is to produce profit um and that's how they come into uh these negotiations so when you say for example a government It can be a municipal government wants to enter into a public private partnership or water provision. um, You do not necessarily expect the government to be expecting to make a profit out of this, but to provide a service that is self sustaining. Whereas the private actor will, of course, be seeking uh, a profit and therefore their priorities uh, won't necessarily be aligned with those of the general public. So this model of uh, of development finance has been uh, increasingly present in the global south. We've seen it, uh, you know, in in the book we document PPP cases, from Mexico to Fiji, going through Africa, um, countries like Ghana, Ethiopia, etc. So the book provides ten cases in which PPPs are um applied very in very different sectors um with this with this very logic that the state is not capable of providing these public services and therefore the private sector has to come in. One last bit that I think is really important and also explains why PPPs sort of become fashionable is that for the past 14 years, we've grown, um shrinking of the public sector, uh, we enter into what we, we talk about or we describe as the, the era of austerity, um, and a period in which um, OECD countries, in their majority, are failing to meet the ODA target, which is 0.7 of GNI. Uh, assigning 0.7 of the GNI uh, to uh, official development assistance. That expectation that target has not been met or by most OC- OECD countries. And the logic again is there is no money for, for public development finance. We need to create private alternatives and therefore we bring in uh, these corporate actors.
0: All right. So rather than go kind of one by one through those 10 case studies, I want to just ask about some themes that cut across multiple chapters and you can, you know, bring up different of the cases, you know, that might illustrate some of the, um, the points. So first I want to ask about gender but what have the implications of PPPs been for gender inequality?
1: Well, thanks for asking that. Um, one of the main concerns we had when we got into this project is that there is growing literature and interest uh, in the issue of PPPs, but there is really scarce documentation about the gender implications of this development finance model. Uh, and that's what we wanted to tackle. Or to tackle. Sorry. Um, so one of the main concerns we we see across um, the different cases uh, that we documented is that there are hidden costs to PPPs. And when I'm talking about hidden costs, I'm talking about things like um, the human and financial resources that governments have to invest in so that they have some form of leverage when negotiating these this contracts. But also, I'm I'm thinking about hidden costs, like those implicit in land leases that are provided from by the state to corporations for, say, 50 years, which reduce access to farming lands. That uh, is, is documented, for example, in, in the case of Sierra Leone in, in the book. Um, and and even more hidden costs, uh is also the cost of social reproduction. So when services uh, that we expect to be public, like access to water, like access perhaps to health, uh, especially primary health, access to education, when those services are either partially or fully privatized uh, or where access to those services is increasingly depending or, or depends increasingly on uh, paying a certain fee out of pocket, which is one of the main consequences of the PPP model. Uh, what we find is that, um, of course, people who live in poverty access these services less, but the need for those services remain, say, for example, needs for healthcare. care. Um, how are people covering for, for their health or needs often Uh, This often implies that people continue to uh, have the needs and have to create unpaid uh, strategies to uh, have them covered, which often um, means increased unpaid labor. So one of the main concerns we we have is that by reducing public provision, we're increasing uh, the unpaid care labor. That is often something done by women and girls um, in in the in, in these communities, specifically women and girls who live in poverty, whose labor days, uh or labor loads rather, uh are drastically increased when there is no access to water or when there is no access to um, healthcare. So that would be one of the main concerns for us. Another has to do with access to land. Um, access to land is also uh a heavily gendered issue especially in, in farming communities in rural communities in, in the global south. And we find that um, many of, uh, of of these development projects that um, depend on large uh, quantities of land that are uh, removed from public access and provided to uh, private corporations, or very long standing uh start by affecting uh, subsistence farmers who tend again to be women and girls uh, who are at the center of social reproduction in these communities. And you
0: mentioned healthcare in there. Could you say a little bit more about how PPPs have affected quality and access to healthcare, since that seems to be a, a major sector where uh, this approach is used?
1: It is in fact a major sector um and, and it's one where we are paying specific attention. Uh many of the chapters are uh, touch on the sector, places like Peru, um Fiji, Kenya, Zimbabwe, um, India, uh India are all countries in which we documented the implementation of in the health sector. Um perhaps in most um Striking case of of this uh, for me was the case of Chhattisgarh state in India, where um, the health insurance for people living in poverty uh, is one of the largest. Think about how large uh, um, India is; how large its population is. Um, uh, the, the insurance or the public health insurance in that state is is perhaps one of the largest uh, t- t- b, uh models applied to, to any insurance system. Um, and what we see in that case is that through that model, new incentives for private clinics were created through which, um, even though women and communities were promised to have uh, free access to health services, Uh, And I'm talking about basic health services, for example, uh, birth uh, Mm -hmm. and and deliveries. What really happens is that when they find themselves in the emergency room expecting this service, they are required an extra fee. Uh, There there are always extra services that are added to the basic uh, service that they are requiring. And they're often rejected care. Uh, and if not rejected care, we find that they often were stranded uh, in the health centers, in the clinics, in the hospitals, and they were unable to leave uh, or to even receive care while uh, being stranded in the hospital until their families provided for the fee. This has resulted in death. Uh, many of them uh, documented again in, in the chapter. Um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, to remember my colleague names, uh, so that I, I firmly refer to her work. This is the worn by Sunduction and Nandi. Um, our main concern in that context is that access to reproductive health services, for example, is, is being denied it's and is costing specifically the lives of women who live in poverty, but also racialized groups that are um having extra layers of uh, obstacles to access to access service. Um, this, it's very difficult for for communities in, for marginalized communities to, to negotiate for many reasons, uh, language-based um, geographic reasons. People have to move locations to access care. And once they uh, get to the service provider, if these are uh, private entities that really are, um, you know, profit, profit-making profit entities that have not their health needs at heart um, and really are, are a business model that is sticking to, to make a profit.
0: And then what about the environmental impacts of PPPs?
1: Oh, one of the main concerns here um, has to do with infrastructure. Uh, PPPs, as uh, they are often applied to the health sector, they are also a model that works uh, very much, uh, or is applying very much in the infrastructure sector. So I'm thinking about highways. I'm also thinking about train systems, about energy production. And these are all policies uh, that require large um, extent of land. In many cases, what is happening in terms of uh, land concentration is that we're finding monocropping being one of the main uh, characteristics uh, all of these um, of these models, and also the forced relocation of uh, rural communities and well, stewards of the land in many of these contexts. So we find that production is being deteriorated and therefore uh, living standards are being deteriorated, but also the quality of the soil is being affected uh, through uh, these models that are uh, profoundly structured in nature and often quite inefficient. Uh, What comes to mind again is the case of Sierra Leone, which is a a biofuel projects whereby many communities were displaced, access to land was uh, heavily affected, um, it changed livelihood uh, for the worse, but all of this was in exchange for, for the idea of accessing electricity, which again, was not quite the result. Uh, the, the, the performance of the policy has been rather poor. Um, Electricity and Energy Act the, the, um, has been very limited. Bad livelihoods were uh, heavily affected.
0: And each of your chapters has a section on resistance to the PPPs. So what are some of the tactics that people have used to resist the implementation of these PPPs and how successful have they been?
1: Well, that's it. that's perhaps my favorite part of this project is, is seeing how people deal with adversity um, and what are the strategies that work uh, for them? Either work in getting their message across, in effectively organizing political mobilization, or more hopefully um, in actually forcing policy change. And and when thinking about that, the chapter that comes to mind for me is um, the work of... Uh, Chifa Turkibe and Sylvia Marfo on Ghana, specifically in the case of the Dome Market, which is a municipal market in in a small uh, municipality. But the PPP model in that case was very different from the ones that we have talked up until now, because it was applied at the very local level in one would be North America the equivalent of a farmers market. Uh, but, but in, in the Ghanaian version, um, where vendors are farmers that come with their own uh, produce uh, to sell and do and so traditionally through uh, traditional systems of organizing that have uh, been working for decades. The PPP model in that case was um, told us the uh, strategy to first create income for the municipality for income generation um, and also with selling this idea of modernizing everyday life, uh, in that process. However, what really was happening is that, uh, the vendors, especially in those vendors that were more precarious already, uh, working or found themselves, uh, dispossessed, uh, by the model. These vendors are mostly women, and, and that's one of the interesting models of, of the traditional system in that vendors and also the, the governance system on of, of the market with, were traditionally based on, on, on women leadership. When PPPs were implemented, that uh, gender dynamic was shifted. to so we a more patriarchal model. Um, and one interesting move that um, vendors made Uh, was actually protesting in very different ways. Some of them very radical for them. Uh, At one point, they they stripped their clothes off uh, in a way of getting their attention uh, to them, Um, you know, in a a rather controversial way. They also went and claimed uh, the attention of the parliamentary and parliament member that was supposed to represent the area and of course, in they state back into the negotiation and staying away from a private bottle, uh, which in what was normally a public matter. Um, the, the case of resistance in Ghana is quite successful. They were able to bring the state back in and different form of regulation uh, was implemented that again brought back uh, vendors to their stalls, and, um, and also gave, or I, I don't want to say gave, but emphasize the importance of consulting with those who are affected by policy, which is one of the main concerns we see across the cases. The PPP model in, in the domain market in Ghana was implemented without consulting the vendors of the market uh, and, and it was implemented without listening to any uh, concrete needs. Um, and this is something that we see across cases, you know, also across sales. The case of the double market is quite local, but I'm also thinking, for example, of the case of a hospital in Lima, Peru, a very large city, uh, a public hospital in which um, the PPP model was being implemented without any transparency. People had no access to the contracts, for example. Um, the implications that did change of this model had in terms of labor conditions for nursing, staff, and for other health workers um, were not transparent to the union, for example, and the contracts to to the um so the actual documents to this contractual relationship between the state and uh, the private corporation involved in that case um, were not made public. Uh, and in particular, I'm talking about La Assistencial Salogal de es Salud uh, right. in Peru. Uh, and I'm mentioning the Peruvian case that we see these from you know across cases and from country to country. Most of the information about the contracts that the state is signing or governments are signing with private corporations are not a public dominion, even though they're meant to be. They're supposed to be. Um, and a lot of the resistance is also around making that information, public information, so that people are aware of why it's being negotiated in their name. Um, one of the things that is most striking about the PPP is that this can be, you know, contracts for 15 years. So it's going to be a couple of generations, at least, of people that have to deal with these agreements, and yet they're not aware of what these agreements are. And that's one of the reasons why we think it's important to write about it and, or talk about.
0: It. So you mentioned in your introduction that you're part of this organization, DAWN. So can you tell us a little more about what is DAWN and what was its role in making this book a reality.
1: Right. So, um, John is it's an organization, it's a feminist organization that has been around since 1984. Um, it came to be um, during the decade of women, the UN decade of women, um, those of us who, who study or teach women's studies or gender studies or are part of activists, they remembering that. A period as one of major um, UN conventions when uh, human rights um, became, or women's rights, rather, became human rights. And um, the whole idea of gender equality became part of the conversation in in development circles. So John comes into the picture during that period. It emerges in Bangalore, India, and we are... Uh, Feminist organization rooted in the global south, run by women from the women from the global south. Um, Most of us are living in the global south as well. Um, One of the main um, reasons for Don's existence is doing research, but also advocacy around issues of economic justice from a feminist lens. So understanding that everyday conditions of living are a feminist concern, um, mm. that women and gender, mm. gender-related discussions are also part of how we think about the economy and how we think about development, and um, we've been around for for almost 40 years now, mm. which, with the main concern. Uh, of of creating uh southern feminist lens uh whereby um economic justice is also uh, gender justice we also are uh, very much involved in, in issues of bodily autonomy and uh sexual and reproductive rights and and health uh, and have been part of large global campaigns like the feminist for a people's Vaccine Campaign, which has been active for the past few years in the context of COVID. Um, and a part of different advocacy spaces, both in the Global South and also the global space. Okay, so I hope we've
0: given our listeners a good idea of what's in the book, got them interested in it. Uh, I'll mention that it is available open access. So, you know, no excuse not to go read it. Um,
1: yeah, so- we're very proud to have it. Um, as an open-access book, and uh, sorry to interrupt, that are really important for us, uh, because of the nature of, of Dawn's research uh, our research, it, it may be part of public discussions. So many of us at uh, Dawn are academics. We work in universities in different countries where professors and researchers, and many of us are also uh, activists. And it's important for us to find that space in which knowledge knowledge production is also part of of an advocacy and a political effort to create worlds that are you know more fair uh for for the majorities. Um and, and that's where we we find ourselves. You also asked what was Don's role in this book and and it was major this book was not edited by me alone. I am a co-editor in this project. I, I um, collaborated with my colleague and friend, Corina Rodriguez-Enriquez, who is um, a researcher at CONICET in Argentina. And like me, is also an executive committee member at DAWN. Uh, and we co-edited this work, uh, but in no way we did it alone. Well, this is part of a, a large collaboration with authors, activists, and researchers around are the countries they write about. Um, I can name them all. Um, I'm talking about Crystal Simeoni and Wangari Pinotti in Kenya, Netsamed Gary Mikael in Ethiopia, Maen Doye in Senegal, Betsabe and Dia Perez in Peru, Isabel Clavijo Flores and Julieta Lamberti in Mexico, La and in India, Hosain Abdullah in Sierra Leone, Archifa Turviki, and Sylvia Marco in Ghana, Niansha Matukai in Zimbabwe Kokanatsiga in Fiji I named all of these authors and there if there's even more people you know uh, that support our work and um, John is a collective. Uh, a lot of our peers there made this happen alongside um, Corina and I. And and really, we write the book in efforts of contributing to a public conversation um, that, is, that includes academia, but also goes beyond it.
0: Okay, well, hopefully being on the podcast here has contributed to the, the public conversation a bit. Uh, so that brings us to our traditional final question. On the new books network which is what are you working on next either individually or with dawn
1: well that's an exciting question and for those of us in academia we're always thinking of and ideas right um as part of dawn we're working uh, intensely in another collaborative uh, book project um, on the topic of policy transformations in the context of the pandemic so we've been looking at what uh, political shifts and policy changes have been happening in the global south um in the context of the pandemic, but not necessarily related to health, but how the large societal changes that have been taking place have shaped, you know, politics and other sectors of of, of life um, that are not obviously related to health, but are very closely related to the pandemic. We're thinking about social policy, about macroeconomic um, policy, for example. So we've been looking into that with other all uh, allies and peers in the Global South, and we're hoping to to have a book out uh, on that topic um, in the next couple of years. Um, and myself, I, I work well, very specifically in the area of, of border and, and migration politics in in the context of Haiti, and the Dominican Republic, so that's another area where I'm working more individually, uh, and I'm excited to to have some articles out soon. All
0: right. Well, we'd love to have you back to talk about that other book uh, once that once that's ready. Um,
1: sure, we'll we we'll be in touch.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Uh, we're we're happy to to be part of this public conversation. So we really appreciate this. Please. Thank you so much.
0: All right, this has been a conversation with Messiah Yavaneros Blanco, editor of Corporate Capture of Development, Public-Private Partnerships, Women's Human Rights, and Global Resistance, published last year by Bloomsbury.